Hello, my name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Paul Verhoeven. You know, everybody's favorite. He made films like Robocop and Starship Troopers, Hollow Man. And you know what? This episode might actually be a satire. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anyone that worked in the Hollywood system that no matter how many movies they made, that critics still didn't get what they were doing? Critics definitely didn't get what he was doing. That said, uh, all of those movies have become so rehabilitated mm-hmm. at this point that I feel like it's almost like a straw man thing to say, ah, yes, the the, the wildly misunderstood Starship Troopers. People, <laughs> people misunderstood it when it came out, but they haven't misunderstood it since. I mean, two live action sequels and an animated series and... I think three animated features are still coming out. One came out this year, shows that, yeah, what he did was very popular and it continued to live on. The same thing with stuff like Robocop or even Total Recall. Or Showgirls, for God's sake, one of the MGM's best-selling video cassettes of all time. So here's what I think of Paul Verhoeven. Going into this episode, I was reminded of a quote by Luc Moulet. uh, (laughs) Everyone's favorite KE critic. Um, And he was describing Samuel Fuller, but he said, On fascism, only the point of view of someone who has been tempted is of any interest. Mm. I think about that point of view a lot, and particularly in Paul Verhoeven, because he's a satirist he's a social critic but he also loves sex and violence that's what i was gonna say is that out of all of the filmmakers who do this like satirical stuff like deconstructing a genre Mm -hmm. that he just loves this shit oh yeah like he's saying oh this is bad but at the same time i'm gonna give you a squib that's so big that it's gonna be verhoeven squibs yeah and You know, it's funny that Paul Verhoeven is so beloved now. He has, at various times in his career, been very controversial and very divisive. Um, I think part of it has to do with a lot of people have grown up with loving his movies. Mm -hmm. People grew up with Robocop or Starship Troopers, um, and so they're more inclined to like him. He's had the advocacy of, you know, certain high profile critics. That's probably also helped his case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the movies are uh, very enjoyable, but... It's surprising that he's so beloved because I think the movies are complex Mm -hmm. and they're not um, the sorts of uh, really straight ahead message movies that seem in vogue today. I think that when people talk about Paul Verhoeven, they like to put him in the box of, oh, you know, they're satirical, but they're very obvious. Yeah. And I, I think that on the surface level, you can read it that way. But especially if you go through his career and you watch a lot of his films... It's very complex of how you're supposed to deal with these things. Especially the Dutch movies Mm -hmm. that we watched this week, um, which I think are still like really combustible items. So Paul Verhoeven, uh, he would say that his life was basically defined by living through World War II as a kid Mm -hmm. and that he saw all of the violence, something that he lived with for the rest of his life. And he said that it's the biggest influencer on the kind of art that he makes. Mm He most famously made a TV show called Floris, I believe, that starred Rooker Hauer. It was like a medieval kind of fantasy adventure show. And that allowed him to make a first feature film, which didn't do so well. And a second one, which me and you both watched, which goes under the title uh, Turk's Fruit. It goes under like three different titles. The translation, I believe, is Turkish Delight. And it also goes, according to IMDb, The Sensualist. <laughs> and this is a film that... Like a fight club, uh, I imagine teenagers seeing it at a specific time would get a completely different message from it. 
Yeah, but it is a complicated movie. Yes, it is. Uh, so this film stars Rucker Hauer as the film begins a man who recently came out of a very um, passionate relationship. And you see him from the get go fantasizing about killing his ex-lover and her current boyfriend. And then it uh, opens with him, uh, his big old cock uh, hanging out. Uh, he's very naked in the movie. A Verhoeven staple. Uh, yeah. We see him picking up various women and having bad sex with them and then being very mean to them. He's a terrible man. He's uh, a rapist. Mm-hmm. You know, what else do you say about the guy? Uh, but the way that Verhoeven shoots this film and the relationship that um, Rooker Hauer develops with Monique Van de Ven, which is the woman that he kind of meets and falls in love with and they have adventures, including a something about Mary style getting your dick stuck in a zipper. But this time you see Rutger Hauer's real dick just hanging there. Uh, this movie has been described as Last Tango in Paris meets Love Story. Mm. Um, it's a very excessive film. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of movie that I mean, he made so many of his movies like this, but it's the kind of movie that often comes early in a director's career and really announces them Mm -hmm. because their presence is so um, embedded in it. You know, it's a movie of shit, of piss, of vomit, vomit, vomit. uh, blood. I mean, it is typical of this movie that, you know, not only is there a wedding scene, but it's like a triple wedding where two of the women are pregnant and then one of them, her water breaks and she's miscarrying because you see the blood on her dress. And then when she gets up off the seat, there's like discharge on the seat and a dog comes up and starts licking it. That we, it, it, Like it has to be all those things. And the way that Verhoeven captures these images is that it's the most energetic thing that you could possibly see. The camera's swirling around everywhere. <laughs> Editing, jump cutting, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Because while we're describing it, it sounds like, oh man, that's miserable. He wants it to feel fun. And I think that's an issue that people have with his movies is that Verhoeven shoots his stuff like, whoa, what a ball. But everybody is often acting the worst way you could act. Yeah. And the other problem with this movie is Rutger Hauer is an absolutely despicable character. Mm. Like he is a rapist. And yet the movie also shows him becoming a better person. Yeah, it does to a certain point. Kind of bullied into it. I still don't like him Mm -hmm. at the end. The cinema of Verhoeven, and it's a good point to just bring it up now, is complicated by the fact that he often deals with protagonists that are stars and that the viewer goes, wait, am I supposed to like this person? Because Mm -hmm. they're the ones that we're following when they're doing all this bad stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes it's really evident, like Kevin Bacon in Hollow Man, where you think he's a star, but he's actually the villain as the movie goes along. Or Michael Douglas in Basic Instinct. Or Rooker Hauer again in Flesh and Blood, uh, Verhoeven's first Hollywood film, which is amazing, Mm -hmm. which you think these guys are going to be the heroes and they're the worst in the world. (laughs) And they get leprosy and you see it kind of eat away at them throughout the picture. And if you can kind of like step back and view it from a distance, like because Verhoeven is showing me this protagonist do these things doesn't necessarily always mean that he's behind them. My only response to that, and it's been, I guess, uh, a criticism that dogged the movie. Th- this was the most popular movie of all time when it came out in in uh, the Netherlands. And it was is... also based on a super popular book yeah. as well that's taught in schools. That's incredible. But it was heavily protested at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I can really say is, you know, trust your eyes yeah (laughs) like like he is a bad guy 
Oh, Rooker Howard is. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. he is. Yeah. But it's just like Verhoeven is always presenting these images in the most fun way possible. Yeah. Another film of his that you look at and you go, oh, there's going to be tons of fun. Spetters, which me and you watch, yeah. is a picture that from the get go, even from its poster art, looks like a last American version style sex comedy. Yeah, or like a BMX bandits or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But with nudity in the way that the Europeans deliver. Yeah, I really had no idea what I was getting into with this. I, I mean, I had heard the story that Steven Spielberg loved Paul Verhoeven's Soldier of Orange and he wanted to introduce Verhoeven to Hollywood. And he was even thinking of recommending Verhoeven to direct Return of the Jedi. But then he saw Spetters and was so freaked out by it that he basically shut off all contact. That's crazy. Um, but even knowing that, I wasn't quite prepared for what I was getting into. Uh, it's a story of a group of um, young motorbike racers and the girl who sort of drifts between them. The rather opportunistic girl, I mm-hmm. would say. Uh, one of them is a blue-collar guy who thinks he's going to rise to fame in the bike world, but uh-oh, he has a debilitating accident and he gets paralyzed. But, you know, he... Uh gets back on his feet and makes a life for himself, right? Nope. He <laughs> throws himself in front of a moving car. Uh, oh, spoilers, by the way. We are going to spoil Spatters. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, I, you know, it's probably good going in because I feel like most people, when they sit down with this, they go like, oh, it's going to be fun or yeah. it's going to be gross, maybe like Turkish Delight. And what you get halfway through is just a parade of misery as a certain point every character is taken down. But we should point out that these characters are set up in the first 15 minutes as being awful people. Yes. Like they're teenagers and they like throw racist insults against a dancer they meet on the dance floor. They beat up a uh, gay man that they find. So this is one of the other characters. He's uh, another biker who makes his living basically posing as a gay prostitute and then stealing money from mm-hmm. the people who solicit him and threatening to tell their wives. But then he himself... Uh, so trigger warning guys this yeah. is this is pretty upsetting stuff but on the way out of one of these jobs uh he gets cornered by a gang of hooligans who gang rape him and this is when he starts to realize that he is in fact gay yes and the movie before then does hint at that because at one point he just watches two guys perform oral sex on each other unsimulated oral sex yep right up there on screen the teenagers (laughs) in the audience who wanted more turkish delight fun probably kind of jump back in their seat i think that might have been the part that freaked out spielberg you think so that he's like oh i don't want any of that in my return of the jedi he may not have even made it to the graphic gang rape scene Um, but that uh, moment when it's this gang rape that makes him realize uh, who he is, you know, that was a very, very controversial mm. scene when it came out. And Paul I- Verhoeven has said that he thought he was making a very progressive film, <laughs> but I think that he, I mean, that is definitely a mistake, I feel. Well, it's hard to defend, but I mean, maybe the only possible defense is that's a character who has grown up in brutality. We mm-hmm. see him with his father, who yep. is a strict disciplinarian, and then after when he comes out to his father, the father starts beating him up, and he keeps, starts taking it. So he, so this is a character for whom sex and humiliation and violence are closely intertwined. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that fully redeems it, but... No, uh, I don't know if... <laughs> that's, my, that's my two cents. But I think that Spetters is a weird anomaly in Verhoeven's work because almost after that one, he did veer into, like, pure entertainment. Because mm-hmm. Spetters is more principally a drama mm-hmm. with, like, a lot of taboo and in-your-face stuff, but it's not as fun as something even like Turkish Delight. Well, he went into 
like straight ahead genre stuff mm-hmm. after this uh you know thrillers erotic thrillers uh sci-fi movies because when he came to hollywood well he didn't make flesh plus blood his most famous film is probably Robocop, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we're not going to talk too much about that because it's been talked to death. But this fascist, um, you know, Ubermensch story <laughs> of a guy that comes back as a robot and is awesome has turned into a literal superhero franchise and yeah. icon that everybody loves. Uh, a uh, satire of the Reagan era mm-hmm. um, that actually uh, transcended. <laughs> The satirical roots into just being, oh man, it's an awesome movie. Well, I'm sure you remember how the city of Detroit, they had a crowdsourced campaign, who should we build a statue for? And the RoboCop one? Yes. And we, I think the uh, politicians were like, we don't want the de- fascist defender of a crime-riddled wasteland. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really not sure whose side to fall on that, because on the one hand, I think it would be funny to have a RoboCop statue, but on the other hand, it's not the most flattering depiction of Detroit, is it? But we, me and Will, we watched uh, Starship Troopers as the one that we wanted to talk about when it comes to Paul Verhoeven. And I know everybody listening is like, what about Showgirls? Well, we'll get to Showgirls in a sec, but let's talk about Starship Troopers, because, you know, of course, I'm of the opinion that Starship Troopers is a fascist film. <laughs> uh, is it possible that I... Are you I'm... echoing um, Roger Ebert, the <laughs> patron saint of the podcast? Roger Ebert's review is... Um, Insane. Absolute dog shit. <laughs> And like all bad Roger Ebert reviews, it's very condescending. He doesn't want to interface with the movie in any way, shape or form. Well, he talks about how it's a movie for children, how it's a movie about, uh, you know, bugs jumping out, how it has interchangeable characters Mm -hmm. and there's no humanity. But then he says... But however, being true to the source material gives Verhoeven a chance to sneak in some sly satire. <laughs> sly satire. So, uh, Neil Patrick Harris showing up dressed as a fucking Nazi at the end. So I'm so I'm glad Ebert detected that there was in fact some satire in the film. <laughs> so for people that haven't seen Starship Troopers, it was a massively budgeted late '90s sci-fi spectacular, starring your favorite actors Casper Van Dien, Neil Patrick Harris, Denise Richards, Denise Richards, and we should point out for people that were not like aware at that time these people were not stars yeah like the joke is that all these people are the kind of like wooden cardboard um you know uh, perfect people that would appear in this kind of war propaganda mm-hmm. and the fact that like Verhoeven was able to pull this off on a studio was like yeah whatever just cast whoever you want that's perfect yeah it's unbelievable <laughs> and uh, this movie is about a bunch of uh teenagers who end up being enlisted in a war uh winning a battle and everybody lives happily ever after Okay, so let's break it down a little bit for people who don't remember the film that well. It's a picture that literally starts with a teacher saying that uh, fascism is the way to go, violence is the only answer. Yeah, and pretty um, much those exact words. And the fist is the, is the only way that there's been any change in society as a whole. They, he even says that they tried to be a socialist uprising and they destroyed it yeah. to rebuild democracy. Uh, there, we see the fear-mongering of the... Uh, evil bug race mm-hmm. where there's news footage of kids who are doing their part <laughs> in the home front by stomping on bugs and and there's that funny part where like the soldiers are showing the kids their guns yep. and they're playing with them 
as the movie goes on, these uh, young, bright-eyed idealists get harder and harder, mm-hmm. um, and they start dressing more and more fascistically. So I should point out that um, we skipped the movie that Paul Verhoeven made, Soldier of War, and one that Steven Spielberg loved so much, which was a story of a famous um, Dutch kind of freedom fighter during World War II. And what Paul Verhoeven did is that he wanted to make a movie where you follow these heroes who are doing heroic things, and only at the end you realize that the bad guys and that they're the, the fascists. Mm-hmm. And that was his goal with Soldier of Orange, but he felt he hadn't pushed it hard enough and that his kind of thesis wasn't understood by most people. So he goes all in on Starship Troopers. The last five minutes of the movie where they where they get the queen bug mm-hmm. in the net and the guy says, she's afraid, and they all cheer. That's so funny. And he's literally wearing a Nazi uniform. Yeah, he is. And then they and then it ends with them doing medical experiments on the on the queen bug. It's a film that as a kid I remember seeing it and being disturbed by it for reasons that I didn't understand. I mean, first of all, it is a hyper-violent movie. That this has an R rating is a joke. And that's uh, a contrast to the other kinds of uh, sci-fi blockbusters mm-hmm. of the time. This is a movie that was often compared to Star Wars, which uh, has been criticized in some Jonathan Rosenbaum circles mm-hmm. for its bloodless combat and how it makes uh, space war or we, fun yeah it makes it like yeah fun and clean mm-hmm. um and and this is the opposite of that and paul verhoeven would probably tell you such is because i am trying to show the reality of war uh i i could have been doing zizek <laughs> yeah you could have been doing any kind of european <laughs> but i am trying to show the reality of war but he would also probably also tell you that he loves seeing bugs get blown apart yeah and like heroes do heroic things because while Ebert in review said the action isn't exciting I don't know what the fuck he's talking about because this action is so much fun Ebert you know like all kind of normcore critics will not deign to enjoy Mm. uh, blood and gore and the the visceral uh, shit and we didn't point out that this was based on a famous novel by Robert Heinlein that was fascistic in its original form Mm. like the original Starship Troopers was all about like war and how you pull it off and how you succeed at it. Mm-hmm. While this movie also has those parts, but it's making a joke of them. Watching this movie again, uh, I liked it quite a bit more than I remembered. Mm-hmm. This was a movie that I always sort of regarded as being kind of like the Gus Van Sant Psycho remake. That's where, crazy to where, me. Yeah, I know. Where, where I always kind of regarded it as like a really interesting conceptual experiment that I wouldn't necessarily want to sit through. Um, because, you know, Denise Richards, Casper Van mm-hmm. Dien, these aren't guys I want to spend time with. They're boring. <laughs> uh, but, but watching it this time, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's so much fun. Yeah. And, like, the performances are super wooden, but that's why it is so enjoyable. Because you're looking at these people yeah. go through these mechanisms in a world that is amazingly realized. Mm-hmm. I remember once being at a Q&A and someone insulted the CGI in Starship Troopers. They had no fucking idea what they were talking about. I think about. the movie looks great. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I say this anytime we watch a movie of this vintage with special effects in it, but so much practical yep. effects work. Especially considering that it's like thousands of bugs at times, but they know when to get in for a close-up for a gross like claw going into Casper Van Dien's leg. I'm sorry that I didn't have time to revisit Paul Verhoeven's 
classic commentary track for the film. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Where he passionately defends it against the haters. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point says, uh, now this is just a bug being torn apart. This is not social commentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is just cool. This is just what I want to see. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, but I think that Starship Troopers is a perfect film because of what it wants to be mm-hmm. like on every level the fact that it's like a little too long it is a little too long <laughs> the fact that like it's so slick but that its visuals do have that kind of like right off the comic book page there's an almost affectless quality mm-hmm. to the images isn't there everything is just very very clean and that mixed with like this hyper real violence like that's played for laughs. And even when I was a teenager and I was watching this and maybe not like get understanding the satirical jabs because, you know, I came out in 97, 98 and I would have been 10. So I would have probably seen it when I was 12. Like I would have probably not understood the kind of connections that we're making to Nazi Germany or the rise of fascism and stuff like that. But it's still funny when you see a guy's head get blown off and he's laying in a puddle of his own brains Mm -hmm. and Casper Van Dien screams, Medic! As the camera like pulls up. That's essentially a Simpsons joke. Okay. Let's talk about the most pressing critical issue of our era, the most divisive topic of our time, Showgirls. Where yep. do you stand on it? Let me go pick up Adam Naiman's book off my <laughs> shelf, who wrote a defense of Showgirls. And let's just uh, uh, crib the arguments he made <laughs> and uh, not credit him. <laughs> so are you asking me, do I believe that it's satirical and it was all done on purpose I'm asking, and Paul Verhoeven knows exactly what he's doing. That's not what I'm asking. Okay. Although I guess I am sort of asking mm. that. What I'm asking is, do you think it's a good movie? And I'm also asking, do you like it? Do I think it's a good movie? No. Okay. I understand what Paul Verhoeven is doing, but I don't know if I connect with it in the way that I do with Starship Troopers. Now, I should point out that maybe that's because my affinities lean more with Starship Troopers Mm -hmm. because what Paul Verhoeven is doing with Showgirls he's not parodying but he's telling a very specific all about Eve story right Mm -hmm. and he's blowing it up to ridiculous heights Mm -hmm. but even like when I sit down and watch it and I enjoy it I feel like structurally it's a mess. Like he didn't really kind of like nail down exactly what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's one person to blame on that. And that's everyone's favorite screenwriter, Joe Esterhaus. (laughs) While stuff like Robocop and Starship Troopers obviously has a a really solid screenwriter in a guy like Ed Neumeyer, who wrote both those films. um, Joe, I feel doesn't have the particular kind of tone that Paul Verhoeven needs. Yeah, I, I mean, the defenders of Showgirls would probably say that Esther House and Verhoeven are working at cross purposes. Mm-hmm. Like, like Esther House is this purveyor of sordid fantasies, yep. and uh, uh, Verhoeven is satirizing them while he makes it. You know, the last time I saw Showgirls was at Adam Naiman's book launch mm-hmm. at the Lightbox. And watching it, you know, on 35 millimeter film on a big screen, pretty near the front, it was an overwhelming experience. <laughs> like, you know, I had only ever seen it, you know, on a TV or on a laptop. And you only ever listened to with that commentary that came on the first uh, big special edition DVD where it's like the camp expert who's just making fun of it. Now it's time for. <laughs> How did this get made? <laughs> um, so, you know, watching it in a theater and I, I was watching it, too, just after Wolf of Wall Street came out. Mm. 
so I reminded me a lot of that movie. <laughs> it's like it's just so excessive. It's just pummels you, and I had a new respect for it after seeing it in that context. And I mean, there's a perfect defense to be like, look, Elizabeth Berkeley, she's Saved by the Bell, same way that Casper Van Dien or Denise Richards, right. like they're in that mold, and they're and he's bringing it mm. to this like crazy sex-filled place while Starship Troopers is all about violence. Yeah, so it's a movie that I feel like makes more sense when you see it in the context mm. of the rest of the movies he was making at this time. Elizabeth Berkley makes more sense after you see Casper Van Dien in Starship Troopers, but also the tone or the tone that he was trying to go for with Showgirls makes more sense after you see Basic Instinct, Yeah, which is very tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It knows how ridiculous it is, but you're also supposed to find it exciting and you're supposed to find it sexy. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't find uh, Showgirls sexy. I I, I no. I'm, I'm, I don't think... Can anybody, like... Well, I think a 12-year-old boy can find it sexy. <laughs> That's true. But, I mean, that um, lap dance scene mm-hmm. uh, with Kyle MacLachlan... Or them making love in the pool. In the pool. Like, I think Paul Verhoeven really wants you to find that sexy. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think it does. And I think he also actually wants you to be engrossed in the story of Nomi Malone. Could it be the difference of violence as long as you're doing it within the confines of like, look how big and broad it is. It works while sex, you make it big and like huge and it doesn't work. Um, I don't know because I think Basic Instinct is while a less interesting film than Showgirls in many ways, it's a much more straightforward movie, but I think it's much more successful on its own terms, I including think, in the sex department, frankly. Than I think Showgirls. that because Basic Instinct is working at not such a high level as mm. Showgirls is, while Basic Instinct is super goofy mm-hmm. and it's playing within like a genre framework of like a giallo, basically. Yeah. It's still controlled enough and enough in the real world for when the sexy parts happen, people are like, oh, wow, that's kind of taking me out of left field. When when Showgirls, it's all of that for two plus hours. Showgirls is more ambitious than mm-hmm. Basic Instinct, so the stakes are higher. The tightrope is much yeah. higher. Watching the movie, I think you can tell what he thinks is funny. Mm-hmm. Like the part where uh, Robert Davi says, do you ever miss you know, it, ha- having people come on you? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's done in this really sappy way. Like obviously that's supposed to be... Gina Gershon's performance is supposed to be funny. As I, I remember Adam Naiman saying at that book launch that it's one of the few Hollywood films that is really about sex and mm-hmm. that has sex like on the surface everywhere. And, you know, a lot of people don't like the rape scene in Showgirls, mm-hmm. but that actually, if you approach the movie on its own terms, that's where all that simmering, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the sexual um, economy of the film, that's the logical end point of it all. And I think it also kind of boils down to he's an auteur, right? So it's difficult to go like Showgirls doesn't work, but Starship Troopers does. Because as if you're like kind of taking his whole body of work into account, mm-hmm. and most people defending Showgirls are huge Paul Verhoeven fans. Yeah. That you need, like, you need yeah. to press that through. Like, it needs to ha- work, and Verhoeven needs to be on the ball. But also, I think it's a movie that only works when viewed through the lens yes. of the rest of his movies. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, then it's a goofy, silly camp movie. But I understand what he's doing. I just don't think he pulls it off like he does in his other films, like Robocop. No. Or Starship Troopers. That said, I would rather watch Showgirls than Basic Instinct. I would as well. Yeah, I think it's more interesting. I don't think Basic Instinct is a film that people that didn't live 
through its release revisit that much yeah. even though i would see that dvd was the ice pick yeah. at all hmvs i think i think basic instinct is fun but yeah. i don't think it's as rich a mm. text as showgirls is well what about hollow man that's one people don't revisit anymore i've never seen hollow man you haven't seen hollow man no, i'm sorry so you watched it this week tell me what you thought i did uh it's a movie that when you look at people write about it it's trash it's awful it is a movie that it's Kevin Bacon turns invisible and he essentially does what any teenager would do, which is, I'm going to go look at naked women. I'm going to feel up naked women. I'm going to assault naked Uh women. And as a movie that is built into like a big budget kind of thriller turns into a slasher for the last 30 minutes, that mixture of the kind of like sex part of it is something that is very difficult to watch Mm -hmm. and you can understand what Verhoeven is doing which is like listen what if I take the star that everybody likes and I go oh what if there was no consequences what would this person do Mm -hmm. and then following it to its logical conclusion which is gross but at the same time like any of his movies he's kind of enjoying what's happening and Mm -hmm. showing it to you and within the context of a big budget film that is very kind of icky to Mm -hmm. see right because there's kind of rules you go into when you see these kind of movies (laughs) that people don't expect to be broken and Verhoeven and Hollow Man does all that stuff and at the same time he wants you involved in a big action climax where Kevin Bacon suddenly is like half see through half you see his organs I mean it sounds good to me Mm -hmm. um sounds like isn't that kind of why we like Paul Verhoeven that he uh uh, pushes the boundaries of of these machine-produced Hollywood entertainments. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I had an appreciation when I saw Hollow Man this time mm. to just sit down and enjoy it for what it was trying to do. And I think that it works for what it is. But I completely understand people being like, whoa, this is super gross and I don't want to watch this. Mm. I've, I've read a bunch of letterbox reviews that had words like morally repugnant and stuff huh. like that. But then that same person would say that Starship Troopers is awesome and it's satirical and that it works. Right. And I think it's just that difference like of material that they're dealing with. Yeah. People like uh, Paul Verhoeven when they think he's a Stanley Kramer type who's, mm. you know, putting... Uh, people uh, in their place yeah where it's where it's just like simple liberal messages mm-hmm. um and when it gets more complex than that that's when people don't like it uh, yeah i think all i think all the love for paul verhoven um that we've been seeing lately comes down to a couple of movies mm-hmm. and anything other than that especially the ones that deal with sex that's when people have a little bit more difficulty well, it is interesting that l his movie from two years ago was so successful and mm-hmm. was so critically praised i mean there were a couple of people um, I, I think, was it Molly Haskell wrote a somewhat uh, a pretty thoughtful negative review of it in a film comment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were, of course, a couple of like straw man. Yeah. Um, bad reviews. Just reviews you read and you're like, you didn't understand yeah. what was going on but, at all. But, you know, for the most part, uh, the, the praise was pretty uniform, which is interesting and surprising given, the you know, that movie. Do you think that movie, if it had been shot in America, the way that he wanted to do it in English would have had the same reaction as it was shot in France with Isabelle Huppert. I think Isabelle Huppert is very essential to the success mm-hmm. of the movie. I mean, I know that he was thinking about casting Nicole Kidman in it. Yes. I don't think it would have worked because Nicole Kidman is a more fragile screen presence mm-hmm. than Isabelle Huppert is. Also, because it was shot in French and because it was shot in a different style than we're accustomed to from him, it was shot much more in that austere cinema of quality style. Yeah, it wasn't the high energy Verhoeven that most people are familiar with. It's much more like Michael Haneke or something. Yeah, exactly. 
um, that gives it a sort of sheen of respectability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also happen to think that it was the best way to shoot that film. Yes. Because if you had shot in the style of Turkish fruit and it come out in the 90s, yeah. oh boy. But but I mean, the whole movie takes its tempo from Isabel Huppert's performance, mm-hmm. which is very uh, restrained. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that if Elle was the last film that Verhoeven ever got to make, it'd be an interesting note to go out on because mm-hmm. it's not what people associate mm-hmm. with the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. And it kind of colors it in a, in a way because Elle is so complex that that kind of in-your-face satire, something like Starship Troopers... People have have thought about his other films differently. Well, it would be an interesting bookend to his career from Turkish Fruit. Yes. The first one, this very manic film about a rapist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Elle, a very controlled film about a rape survivor and her complicated relationship with the rapist. I mean, he still wants to go out on a film that's still on his IMDb was announced like a few years ago, I think, which was... I believe about a nun going through a kind of nunsploitation situation, I assume. He also has wanted to make a film about his theory of Jesus Christ. So long he's wanted to do this. He wrote a book on his theory of Jesus. Which, which is, I've read. And what did you think of it? I enjoyed it. I don't know how seriously to take it, but I enjoyed it. Because his theory is basically that Jesus was a real person mm-hmm. that had no kind of theological associations. Going into the book, he suggests that anything that's supernatural in the Bible, he just assumes isn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he kind of goes through case by case all the big miracles, you know, why they happened when they happened. You know, why, why were these events maybe repositioned into being miracles? But for the most part, he suggests that Christ was a a, a healer mm-hmm. and a sort of freelance spiritualist of some kind who created a new code of ethics and became threatening to the powers that be because he became popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that other scholars have tried to make the case for Christ as having been more of like a anti-Roman revolutionary. I mean, that's the plot of the Passover plot, the movie that came out in 1976 mm. that starred Zalman King. Oh. Oh. The director of the Red Shoe Diaries himself yeah. as a non-spiritual Jesus who was trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. I do remember his Jesus book concludes with him saying all of the things that Jesus said after his resurrection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're kind of monosyllabic phrases. And, yeah. and Verhoeven writes something like, uh, what happened to the richness of his words, the freshness of his insights? Um, <laughs> I am sorry, but I must conclude that Jesus is dead. <laughs> Verhoeven, what a fun guy. <laughs> so, letters this week. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Sorry to any hardcore Christian listeners of the podcast, by the way. Uh, I, don't, I do not mean to either endorse or um, uh, I, I, I don't know who to believe when it comes to <laughs> Jesus scholarship. Verhoeven <laughs> or God himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotcha there. Listen, there's only one book I've read, and that's the good book. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Jerry Lewis is the total filmmaker. I've read that too. I've read two books. (laughs) So this letter is from Amy Goldberg and she goes, Hey guys, I've been listening for several months and recently became a Patreon person. Thank you very much. I intended to send a more substantial email. However, I just watched Freaks for the I don't know how many is time. Is there a conversation about it buried somewhere in one of your past episodes? Is it possible that this one has not yet been discussed? How could this be? Thanks, Amy. Uh, Tune in for this year's Shocktober because I believe uh, Todd Browning has been discussed as a potential topic. Which is only five months away, I guess. Yeah, it's it's still a little while. So you'll have to hope that this... uh, 
Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin like partnership lasts until then. Yeah. How long were they together for? 10 years. Okay. Oh my God. I think we maybe have a decade in us. Why not? Yeah, maybe one decade. Yeah. And then like a few decades after that, and then we get back together at a telethon of some sort. Yeah. Um, but Freaks, um, you know. Fantastic movie. Yeah, we're both very much in favor of it. And uh, I don't think it's come up mostly because we've been wanting to talk about Todd Browning. And yeah. uh, which, spoiler, is a filmmaker that... Um... He, well, he's got one great movie. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think and he's, and right. he's got a number of interesting films <laughs> Interesting well, films. But Freaks is the great one. And the next letter is from P.D. Walter. Now, this letter is really long. Uh, so, sorry, uh, P.D., but we're not going to read all of it. Sorry. But we but really we, appreciate it. Was it was very nice. It was lovely. But you did ask two questions, which we'll get to. They go, Have you ever been tempted to systematize your thinking about film? Or if that sounds too pretentious and antiseptic, just to draw some general conclusions or principles about what you enjoy and why? If so, what are some of the generalizations? For example, what makes a bad Ron Howard film relatively unenjoyable compared to an enjoyably bad Matt Farley film? Or what, in your opinion, makes one pretentious, slow arthouse movie worse the slog, and what makes another unwatchable? I, I, you know, I think the idea of systematizing how you approach film is one that everybody does on a certain level. And if they say that they don't, they're lying. I kind of think that our podcast is an attempt to systematize our, our <laughs> thoughts about film, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Um, but aside from that, I'm hesitant to put down dogmatic rules. Yeah. Cause then you get into the auteurist crowd who are trying to apply certain rules to give what they're doing value. And when stuff doesn't fit into that, you have to struggle to figure out a way why this is not working but that said like we both have worldviews, yes. and i think it uh you know what makes a, a matt farley film more interesting to us than a ron howard film i mean i think to address that idea i think both of us are maybe a little bit you know we've seen a lot of mainstream hollywood films mm -hmm. and i think there comes a point when you get slightly burnt out by it I and would... you look for other textures you i know? would say that like passion is something that i always look for in a film but if you hear ron howard talk he's very passionate about mm -hmm. the films that he makes but they're so kind of like lukewarm because it almost feels like any edges have been sanded off when he's making a picture because he's thinking of like the entire audience he's a director who says stuff like i don't have one particular style i bring a new style to every movie i make and you're like oh okay yeah i understand that because there's no style I mean, if there's a, you know, an idea that informs pretty much the way I approach film, I'm sorry to say it has to be the auteur theory. I mean, don't you think? I mean, I think that's... Yeah, because you want to give value to, like, one individual's efforts, and that will push you into different places, and will also give you one person to go, I like his work or art, her work. Art is uh, very interesting to me as a mode of self-expression. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting paradoxes of film is that it's this very collaborative art form. And yet s most of the movies I love are movies that can be attributed to a single person. Mm -hmm. But that said... Um, or that you can convince yourself belongs to a single person. Yeah, in, the, in certain cases. Yeah. Um, but... 
I, I mean, I don't know. We all know the limits of uh, O-Tourism. Mm-hmm. We all know the structural imbalances of it. Uh, we all know that certain films are, you know, authorless texts. Mm. Who is the author of a Marx Brothers movie? Yeah. Um, I, I think know. that when it comes to systematically kind of uh, discussing certain films, that applies a lot to genre films when I'm talking about them, especially if you've seen a lot of them, that you almost want to pinpoint, like, if they just did this differently, it would be better. Like, when you watch an action film and there's three action scenes, mm-hmm. and you're like, ah, if there was just two more action scenes the movie would be more exciting because i think that especially me and will when we watch a lot of like hong kong movies a lot of those pictures don't have that kind of involvement in the stuff between the good parts Mm -hmm. and that like slasher films you go ah if there was just two more people that got killed like it would be more fun and i think that genre films I, I tend to sometimes do that, but then you'll have a film that doesn't fit those rules at all, but it's just really engaging and involving, and that's why it's good. But that happens not that often. So when it comes to you, it's like the keyword is passion. Yeah, passion, yeah, yeah, that I feel that someone is invested in what they're making, okay. and a personal point of view, usually. And for me, control. <laughs> control? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ed Wood, he had his hand on every element that yeah. was in front of the camera. You know, just toxic, bad people wielding unaccountable power. <laughs> and because that, That's my speed. <laughs> that's reflected so clearly in the film, and so evidently. Yeah. Uh, The second question goes, I'm increasingly annoyed by a trend in admittedly fairly mainstream Hollywood films, particularly sequels and big tentpole movies toward utterly nonsensical plotting. This may sound like an absurd lament, but I think if you go back and watch good mainstream blockbusters from 20 years ago, say Terminator 2 or even something like Jurassic Park, you will notice that they take the time to establish credible characters and relationships and are often more carefully and logically plotted out than their current equivalents. Now, I feel like these films move so fast and are so sloppily put together that how the story moves from A to B to C literally makes no sense. See any of the recent canonical Star Wars films for evidence of this. It's as if the filmmaker thinks we are too stupid or too inattentive to notice. This baffles me. It actually goes on for a while, mm-hmm. uh, uh, giving examples. Like, he doesn't like Blade Runner 2049. He really doesn't like Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi, which whatever you think of his humor or his radical undercutting of the series conventions is just not a good story, nor is it even a fun, well-executed action film. Am I seeing the past, i.e. the 80s and 90s sci-fi and fantasy films I grew up with through rose-colored glasses, or have you noticed the same trend? Well, putting aside uh, those specific examples, I think there have been two big trends affecting storytelling yet in these kind of big tentpole movies. One is that they're increasingly international. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, China will soon be a bigger market than Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so the movies have to appeal to lots of different foreign markets. And so they become a little less culturally specific. The other one is that all of these movies seem to be attempts at world building and you know, cinematic universes. So a Marvel movie has to spend a lot of time picking up threads and sending up new threads for other films in this giant Marvel infrastructure. And, you know, to another, to a certain extent, Star Wars is like this too. So those are two things affecting storytelling in Hollywood films. In the 80s, it was like you'd make Batman Mm -hmm. and you'd have the idea that this will probably have a sequel at some point, but, and then you'd make the sequel. But it wasn't like, you know these cinematic universes that are set up to be cinematic universes from the get-go. I don't think that's as big a problem as you think it is. Like, The Mummy, yeah, that movie is shit, and it's setting up a bunch of strands. Mm -hmm. But even, like, 
pushing away Iron Man 2. Like, the Marvel films don't do that that much, I don't feel, when I watch them. Give I, thought, example. I thought Thor Ragnarok had, like, 20 dead minutes at the start while he's, like, talking to uh, Doctor Strange and he's going, you know, checking in on all these characters. Oh, I think that's just fun. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I know, but you don't like those movies. You're right, I don't. <laughs> and I think that films are often written by committee. Mm-hmm. And that's like the nature of having 10 million screenwriters trying to put one picture together. I mean, that's that's been the case since the beginning the, of time. Since the beginning of time, yeah. yeah. And you just don't hear about the really shitty ones, but you get to see them in theaters now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I liked The Last Jedi. Yeah, we well both enough. liked yeah. it. And we, we talked about it in a Patreon episode, I believe. Do you think uh, blockbuster storytelling is getting worse? Compared to what, though? Like the 90s? The 90s was a terrible decade yeah. for blockbusters. And the 80s were a terrible decade for blockbusters I mean, like, as well. I mean, yeah, like Terminator 2 is a good movie, but... But I that mean, is like an outliner I mean, and stuff. Man, like Twister. Yeah. Uh, Dante's Peak, Volcano. Yeah. like <laughs> Godzilla. You, like, you look at those... <laughs> And you liked them because they were there when you grew up. Yeah. And, I mean, there's something to be said about the fact that uh, people believe attention spans are nothing now. So they have to, like, give a bunch of images really fast. But then you'll get blockbusters that are so boring yeah. <laughs> that do the same thing. I mean, anyone when they're growing up, I feel like you read any reviews, even in the 50s, and they're like, the movies are dead. It's all blockbusters now. And... Now people say that as well, like the movies are dead because we want to go international and markets and stuff like that. Um, I mean, the movies are dead in the sense that um, everything's migrating to TV. Yes, that's pretty (laughs) much it. Yeah, I don't know. It's such a broad question. I mean, the letter writer also says that like, is it just that blockbusters are basically B-movies with a budget and we shouldn't expect them to hang together as coherent narratives? I think B-movies can be very good. Yeah, they can be. Yeah. And I think that uh, the blockbuster, the problem is that there's too many cooks in the kitchen and that's when you get something that's not good. Yeah. Because they're trying to appeal to everybody. Yeah, the and blockbusters I like, I would say, uh, I, again, like yeah. like most movies I like, are the product of a uh, dominant person's vision. I mean, yeah, like Rob Cohen, who like made Ro- Hurricane Heist. Yeah, I mean, Ro- God Cohen. And he's an <laughs> he's a true artist. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for your letter, Peter. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't answer the question as probably solidly as you would have liked. But these, I could, these are confusing times. Yeah. Movies are transforming. Who knows what's happening? Yeah, Bumblebee is going to be out soon. The I'm, next Transformers movie. I'm, honestly, I'm just. There may not even be movies in ten years. <laughs> We're going to be getting... Uh, virtual reality implants? It'll be VR and episodic television, and it'll be streaming uh, into a chip in our brains. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, if you want an answer, movies are shit. It's all superhero movies now. Yeah. And there's no middle brow, yeah. uh, middle range movies anymore. <sighs> I was just reading uh, Dwight McDonald's famous essay, Mid Cult and Mass Cult, where he was complaining about the rise of middle brow culture. Really? And I was thinking, boy, this is so quaint. Um, on this week on our Patreon, which you can get for $5 a month, you get not only a Patreon episode, but also a live episode of sometimes me and Will, sometimes me and somebody else, uh, going to see a movie and then talking about that movie right afterwards. A live episode. I mean, not in front of an audience. (laughs) No, it's live in the sense that I don't edit it and it's usually us in the movie theater afterwards or walking home. As it was recently when I did it, uh, with my partner, Emily Milling, and we saw a certain new movie that came out and, uh, didn't make as many waves as people 
thought it was going but to. But those post-film discussions are only up for a month, I believe. That's right. They're a month. They, they so disappear. only four episodes at a time. And we're not at four. We'll be at four next week. And then the first one will just disappear. We still have a regular <laughs> Patreon episode. Yeah, much we do. more polished and brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Yeah, like this week we talked about Burt Reynolds. Yes. Because <laughs> me and Will watched uh, his newest starring vehicle saying newest as he has multiple ones. That's like that, that episode of The Simpsons where... <laughs> Selma says, oh, Troy McClure's taking me to a screening of his latest film, and it's at the, the flea market theater. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Burt Reynolds started a movie called The Last Movie Star, and it's a Adam Rifkin joint, and it's all about <laughs> Burt Reynolds being a sad old man who feels like he wasted his life. Did me and Will like it? Well, you're going to have to listen to it to find out. Uh, Important Cinema Club, just search it in Patreon or Google, and it'll come up. And you want to become a member now because me and Will are soon going to post our commentary on Edgar G. Ulmer's Detour. That's right. And that'll be available to Patreon subscribers who just pay $5 a month. So become a subscriber now. Next week, what are we going to do, Will? We're doing another deep cut. We'll be talking about the Chinese actress Ruan Ling Yu. And people may go, wait, are you talking about the uh, subject of Stanley Kwan's famous film Center Stage, also known as Actress? Why, yes, he is. Yes. We're going to be watching that film, Center Stage, and we'll also be watching The Goddess. Yes, The Goddess, which I think is her most famous film. She was a silent film actress. Mm. And reportedly, I haven't seen The Goddess yet, but Mm -hmm. reportedly she had a much more naturalistic acting style. Uh, I have seen Center Stage, Mm -hmm. and it's a good film. And before we go, I would just like to thank everybody that checked out Matt Farley's movies after our episode. Warmed my heart. (laughs) We got a lot of Twitter responses. Uh, People sent me emails saying that they either heard of this guy as just like a kooky music uh, man, but I'd never known that he had made movies and that they watched them and they kind of blew them away. So thank you very much. And if you haven't checked out his films, go and check them out. Most of them are available feature length on YouTube. So my name is Justin Nicklou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hey, Will, have you visited ain'titcoolnews.com lately? Oh, always got to get my fix of the head geek. <laughs> uh, and uh, Mr. Beaks oh, and... Man. Uh, uh, the, Moriarty, uh, the Spoony one, was he? Uh, was he uh, them? Who was the character that Pat Oswalt played, and he did reviews on that website? I didn't know Pat Oswalt. Yeah, did he on did it website. under another name, and he wrote very like over the top, like fake reviews. That's funny. I mean, I was never uh, a very avid "Ain't It Cool" news fan. The site was always just a little too much of an eyesore for me. Oh, it's so ugly, and it still looks that way. Well, I don't even. It's still up. Yeah, it's because I remember checking a few weeks after shit went down with Harry. Yeah. Actually, you know, after the, the scandal with Harry Knowles, like supposedly his sister took over editing it. Mm. But I mean, it was clearly just him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a website that it was such a big deal when it existed that Harry Knowles actually wrote a book about it. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't remember what it was it called. It was called Ain't It Cool. Oh, uh, okay. And it was, he had a ghostwriter on it, so it was much more coherent than any of the, you know, shitty missives he, you know, puked out onto the internet. <laughs> but he was famous for, like, tanking movies, supposedly. I mean, well, supposedly. the famous one was, like, Batman and Robin, which is, like, come on. Yeah, that wasn't Harry the tank that, but studios, you know, this was the first time any of them had heard of the internet, and they mm. thought, well, well who, who's this guy who's operating outside of the system because he was posting like pre-production art and stuff Mm. like that 
But they also figured out that Harry was pretty easy to buy. Like, I remember, didn't he write a really favorable review of Godzilla because he got invited to the big premiere. At... <laughs> and the Taco Bell dog was there. Yeah. And then the next day he said, um, 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 actually, uh, I saw the movie again and it's bad. <laughs> I think we spent too much time on Ain't It Cool News. Harry Knowles, piece of shit. Good riddance. A website that just got brought up because while when we stopped recording, we started talking about the websites we used to visit. A conversation, I believe we've had already but well, let's have it again listen we're a hundred plus episodes <laughs> in already and i'm already getting emails from people asking me to do episodes we've already done so <laughs> we should do refreshers at this point well, you know the website that you mentioned was comingsoon.net yes which is a site that i'm sure i visited in the early 2000s and i, I was... never visited it though it's just a friend of mine still visit it today well it was never a loyal site yeah. for me um but you know it would it was just there it would have news so sometimes mm-hmm. i would go to it um and i was surprised to learn that it's still around and uh another site that i was surprised to learn is still around is joeblow.com you remember that icon of him like in sunglasses like giving a thumbs up or something like that joe joeblow.com the only movie website the only mainstream movie website to have a movie hotties section well at the end of every article there would be a photo of a woman in a bikini, no matter what it was. I feel like even obituaries. You know who also does that? Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum. No, he doesn't. Well, no, but it's like oftentimes he'll have like, you know, screen caps from articles. And it'll be naked women. Yeah, it'll be like, you'll be reading his Eyes Wide Shut review and it will just have a picture of a naked Nicole Kidman. Which is it. great when it uh, retweets it automatically on Twitter yes. and the photo is just a naked woman. Yeah. That yeah. happens more often than you would think. Yeah. What were some other sites that you visited uh, in the early 2000s? and say that you don't visit now. As I've discussed a lot, uh, I was a loyal fan of (laughs) zombiekeeper.com. The um, popular forum there uh, introduced me to such things as John Woo and um, Dead Alive and George Romero and all the stuff that I hadn't heard about before. But that site disappeared very quickly. I was a huge fan of kungfucultcinema.com. Oh, yeah. That was a huge site doesn't exist anymore there's no trace of it on the internet did you like city on fire i did Uh, and that still exists but i was never i always kind of disagreed with the reviews Mm -hmm. so it was not it was a website i went to a lot because they covered hong kong cinema stuff how about badmovies.org i never liked badmovies.org and i'll tell you why i thought they were too mean well, they were definitely in that Medved tradition, mm-hmm. like, so bad it's good. Yes. And because it would give thing, wasn't it like a, like, beaker or a lava lamp or something like that? Oh, no, that was uh, Stomp Tokyo. That's right, Stomp Tokyo. Yeah. Or Cold Fusion Video, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> what a trip down memory lane. Badmovies.org had a lot of video clips and a lot that of pictures. That was good. Yeah. That you could watch video clips from... I'm trying to think of like, I'm sure I watched them over and over and over again. That blocky real player video. Okay, so in the late 90s, when I was probably like nine or 10 years old, uh, jimcarryonline.com, <laughs> a, a favorite site to visit, because they had blocky, like, you know, you could download the Ace Ventura Pet Detective trailer. I remember visiting the Mars Attacks website for the movie, <laughs> and there was Flash games, and they had never experienced games like that on the internet, and that blew my mind. Oh, well, I visited the Space Jam website before, it became a hipster meme. Yeah, it still exists, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I visited it 
back in the day. You were there before. Yeah. It was cool. I must have as well because yeah. I was so hyped for Space Jam. Back in like in the mid 90s, the only way I could get on the internet was at my dad's work. So it was, really? like, it was like an event to, <laughs> yeah. to get the internet. The, at dad's work or the library. Mm. Um, I remember also liking a pythonline.com, <laughs> the official Monty Python website. Um, and then when I got a little older, you know, say the early 2000s, mm-hmm. uh, James Berardinelli's Real Views. I don't, I've never heard of that website before. Uh, James Berardinelli was a guy who kind of got in on the ground floor of online film criticism. Mm. He was posting in, you know, message board groups before the internet as we even know it today. Mm. And Roger Ebert discovered him and sort of uh, signal boosted him and said, this guy's the best of the online critics. And uh, Berardinelli was, I think, an electrical engineer who um, uh, just started reviewing movies. And I don't think his prose really holds up. Where is he now? Is he still doing he it? He still or? does it. Really? Not not. Yeah. Wow. I yeah. mean, there's something about that tenacity that at a certain point you go like, I'm not going to get any more popular than I am in Born Cinema Club podcast. <laughs> you just keep going. Yeah. I guess hey, rate and review us on iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Art for art's sake. You know? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean chud cinematic happenings under development was a place that i went to a lot that was the place of um devon farachi oh god very opinionated <laughs> he has a new website he has a new blog. yeah i know <laughs> and other than that i don't think there was that many that i visit i think i named all the top ones there that there would be like three or four that I would visit every morning when i woke up mm-hmm. and i would go to a parent's house or something like that to read the new news and imagine all these movies that i couldn't see because they would be like stuff they would talk about and it yeah. wasn't opening anywhere near a theater near me yeah anything else that you got uh siskel-ebert.com <laughs> where you could listen to audio reviews of their clips R- really yeah, yeah yeah yeah. did you ever continue to go to rogerebert.com after he passed away uh i would say no. no um after he died you know like as we said on the episode there comes a point in every cinephile's life when one falls out of love with roger ebert mm-hmm. and also i feel like so much of you know, Roger Ebert's connection to the audience came from, you know, yeah. watching him on a week to week basis. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't revisit his criticism very much. Oh, really? Yeah. Except when you look up to see what he was thinking about a movie that you're watching now, especially if it's like really bad. Well, like I mean, Troopers. I remembered the Starship Troopers. <laughs> you did? Yeah. Oh yeah. man, that's crazy that he had such like an important part in your life that you would remember stuff like that. I mean, the the thing is, when you think about when Starship Troopers was misunderstood, do you think that's the review that misunderstood? Do you think your dislike of Starship Troopers, the tendrils are from that Roger Ebert review? No, I, I mean I never disliked Starship okay. Troopers, and I think I always recognized that Ebert was wrong on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I always kind of liked Starship Troopers. I think it just came from. Um, there was a time when I wasn't quite at the cosmic brain <laughs> stage yet, when um, I wasn't willing to find. Mm. Uh, you know, those actors funny. Yeah. I think that Ebert is a good, like, beginner um, critic to, mm-hmm. for people to get into because he is so often horribly wrong <laughs> that you can point to those reviews and go, this guy doesn't always know yeah. what's going on. And you can rebel against him. Exactly. 